You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. All the girls are complicated. Everyone is precious too, and you might get lucky if you do. Oh, you might get lucky if you do. Find the one that makes you laugh. Find the one that takes your breath where you won't get everything that you want. Oh, but you'll need one to dote upon. Hello and welcome to episode 167 of the Christian Feminist Podcast. I'm your moderator, Carla Godwin, and with me today are Victoria Reynolds Farmer and guest panelist, Reverend Emily Payne. Hello, everybody. Hello. Thank you so much for being with us. Um, And I'd really love for us to introduce ourselves really quickly. Um, So could we start with you, Victoria? Yes. Uh, Hello. I am Victoria Reynolds Farmer. I am one of the founding members of the CFP. Uh, which we just discovered before recording has been going for nine years, which is completely insane. Uh, I have a PhD in literature and gender studies from Florida State University. Uh, For my day job, I work in customer engagement for uh, an agriculture industry market research firm. And in my free time, in addition to uh, talking about really interesting things on this podcast, I uh, publish a couple articles a year, uh, the upcoming version of which is coming out in uh, next week on Literary Hub. So that's exciting. What's that one about? Um, it is a revised version of the first piece I wrote for Plow two years ago, the one about um, touring London in a wheelchair. Yeah. Oh, that's super exciting. I'm excited to read that. Um, very cool. Emily, would you be willing to hop in and introduce yourself? Sure. So I'm Emily Payne. I'm an Anglican priest in Albury, which is a regional city in Australia. I have a Bachelor of Science, which has nothing to do with that, but is interesting anyway, uh, a Master of Divinity and an Advanced Diploma of Ministry. And I am in charge of a parish. I'm married and I have a 10-year-old daughter. So all of that keeps me busy and out of mischief. Yes, very busy. Um, And I'm Carla Godwin. I'm a regular panelist on the Christian Feminist Podcast. So some of you know me. Um, I have a master's degree in in British literature um, and uh, have worked in progressive faith spaces uh, for about five years. I spent time in those spaces. Um, In the last three years, I've been working in philanthropy, currently the director of the Paris Foundation, which is an organization that um, champions a building called Paris Hill, which is um, an affordable housing building that uh, creates housing, supportive services housing for youth exiting foster care. So those are a lot of words, (laughs) Um, but I'm so glad that we're all here today. Uh, Thank you to both of you for being here. And if you're familiar with uh, the Christian Feminist Podcast, you know that typically we discuss a text or a show or an idea, um, and we usually have some reading that we start with, and, and our panelists have all shared some reading, and we go through a discussion of that topic. Um, this time's a little bit different, which I'm really excited about, actually, because today we're going to use kind of our stories and our experiences. Um, you just met Emily Payne, who, who, like we said, is a guest panelist, and Um, Emily wrote in, she's actually a listener, and she wrote in and said, hey, as an Anglican priest, I actually am really curious about your thoughts on women in leadership. And she said, 
you know, there are different points of view and I've enjoyed hearing all of that. And I'm actually really curious if there's um, sort of a, a conversation that could be had around that. And so we've responded to Emily and said, yes, please, let's have that conversation. And why don't you come on? And so part of, part of that curiosity, um, and if you've been a regular listener, you know that Victoria converted to Catholicism. And so part of that curiosity was about the different approaches to women in leadership um, that the Anglican faith and the, the Catholic faith have. So we thought it would be really fun to just put that in direct conversation. So Victoria was up for that and Emily was up for that. So we're gonna use um, their experiences and their faith traditions to kind of just talk about this idea of women in leadership, ordination, um, the various things that uh, women in religion face when it comes to um, thinking about their roles and putting that in quotes in the church. So I would love to, and I'm going to kind of act as moderator and let Victoria and Emily be our experts. So I would love to start with, for both of you, just where does your faith story start? Like, where do you um, remember your first faith experience? What was the, the church in which you first remember worshiping? So can we start with you, uh, Emily? Sure. Um, and in a way, my faith story starts late because both of my parents were lapsed Catholics by the time I was born. Uh, and both had, in slightly different ways, wounds from and critiques of their time in that church. So although my mum in particular has, I think, quite a lively faith and taught me to pray and to read the Bible and, and to believe what I was reading and so on, faith was very much a personal or individual thing. It was me and God and my Bible. And church wasn't part of the landscape for us growing up at all, and it wasn't until my late teens that I started saying, I think there might be more than this. I think I'd like to see, I feel like there should be more. Um, and that's when I started going to church. I was baptised when I was 22. Uh, so mum's quite astonished that she somehow managed to raise a priest. Um, but really it was, it was, I think, looking around in my late teens and going, where can I find more than I've had up until now? That's fascinating. So it sounds like you actually had a real desire for for a communal experience of faith rather than an individual one? Um, I didn't know that's what I desired. I knew that, I, I felt, I just knew that it felt like this, that surely this isn't all there is. I mean, you know, I did have a sense of God in my prayer time um, and I did really appreciate what I was reading in scripture, but it just felt like there was meant to be more. Mm -hmm. and, and I found that in community, but I didn't know I was going to find that. It was, I almost stumbled into it. Right. So when you were baptized at 22, what church was that? What was the? Uh, that was, well, it was by an, in an Anglican rite, but I was actually baptized by full immersion in the sea. So it was really special. Yeah, very cool. Very cool. Victoria, what about you? Where's your faith story grounded? Uh, first, I just want to say thanks, Emily, for sharing that. That was really beautiful. Um, and I, I definitely see that, that pattern of finding something I didn't know I was looking for until I found it, uh, in, in my own journey as mm. well. I think, I think God works that way, um, quite often. Uh, so I was raised Southern Baptist, grew up in the church, um, there two, three times a week. Um, my parents, um, were, lifelong Christians uh, to my mom was raised Methodist and my dad was uh, raised uh, Baptist and I grew up Baptist. I um, grew up in a church that sort of increased its theological conservatism as I got older. Mm. Um, when I, when I was a teenager that really started to 
chafe for me. Um, I've, I've told this story on the show before, but I will tell it again briefly here. Um, when I was about 14, it was Youth Sunday in our church, which is this thing in the Baptist tradition where the youth group leads um, the service for a day. And none of the boys in my church wanted to give the sermon. And I was like, I want to be a teacher. I would like more public speaking opportunities. Can I do it? And all the deacons were like, no, you're a girl. And I, uh, yeah, it, um, I, I still, I still cringe about it. Um, and my father, God bless him, uh, was an attorney is now a retired attorney and taught us kids growing up uh, to defend our arguments with proof. Like that's just, that's the environment I was raised in. And so I went to some elders in the church and said like, Hey, what about Judith? What about Lydia? What about this? And like really defended myself with biblical arguments. And they were like, that's really great. Obviously, you know, the Bible also know you're a girl. Um, and that is a moment that stuck with me uh, for a very long time. Um, I, left the Baptist church um, right around the time I started dating my now husband. Um, we were Presbyterian for some years, most of the years of, of our marriage. And partly that was because the PCUSA ordained women. And partly that was because the Presbyterian church has a very well-defined intellectual history and tradition. Um, we've both always been questioners and learners. Um, you know, we have what, four uh, advanced degrees between us, uh, which is sometimes an asset and sometimes a liability, to be honest. <laughs> that, that's great stuff. I love it. Keep going. <laughs> um, and what else? Uh, so I'll, I'll get to the Catholic part since that's, uh, since that's what we're here for. Um, we kind of both, he and I both started getting drawn to Catholic theology around the same time uh, for very different reasons. For me, um, I, I have a, a really deep devotion to the Blessed Virgin Mary. Um, she has kind of called to me really my entire life. Um, I've, I've published about this and we can, we can link to that. Um, we can link to that article if, uh, if that would be useful. I think it would be great. Yeah. Uh, okay. And in addition to Mary, um, the thing that is most important to me about Catholic theology is uh, the embodiment of the sacraments. Uh, I am, as longtime listeners to this show will know, uh, a disabled woman. And my biggest, e even bigger than sort of the gender issues I have growing up, um, my biggest issues with the church in which I was raised were always, though I did not have the term to explain it when I was a kid, um, issues of internalized ableism, issues of um, biblical interpretation of Jesus's healings that made me feel not like a valued member of my community. Um, I We don't have to dive really deeply into that now, but um, because sacramental theology must be embodied to be enacted because the anointing of the sick and the taking in of the Eucharist and the document, the doctrine of transubstantiation and all of those things see holiness in physicality. Um, I, I was really drawn to that. I felt like that really filled in a void 
um, from growing up in the Protestant tradition that I didn't realize I was trying to fill until I found the thing that would fill it. That that's um, such a beautiful way to talk about what your what your um, the call that the Catholic Church had for you. I think I thought a lot about embodiment and and religion at this point. Um, as I grew up a Protestant as well, and it, it is so very much uh, disembodied faith. Um, and I think a lot about religious trauma now and think about how trauma sits in the body. And so ache for and long for some sort of embodied practice of, of faith of, uh, I don't know. So it's really great to hear you talk about that. Um, I appreciate it. Uh, um, Emily, would you be willing to talk a little bit about um, your current church affiliation and like what you learned about women in leadership in the church previously and where you are now, what that progression has been like for you? Sure. Um, but just before I do that, I'd sort of add that I, I very much agree with what Victoria is saying about the importance of, of embodiment. And um, I think there's, there's a tendency in some strands of Christianity to kind of do this dualistic thing where it's the mind that really matters. It's what you assent to and what you believe that really matters, not, not what your body is doing or what you, what you do or how, how, your, how your body holds your faith. And I think that's something that's, that's really deeply problematic. So I, what you're saying there, all of that resonates really well. Um, what did I learn about women in leadership in the church? Um, well, because church wasn't part of my landscape, the question of women in leadership wasn't really on my radar for a long time either. I was, I should explain for your American listeners that Australia is a much more secular country than America is. Um, our, our church going, the, the portion of our population that's church going is much smaller. And um, the, the kind of pattern of which churches are, are kind of culturally dominant is very different. So here, the big churches aside, sort of the Catholics and the Anglicans, um, I, I surprised Victor Urkala the other day by saying that in Australia there are more Buddhists than Baptists. Um, just, to, just to kind of explain that, that um, what, what's kind of around in the cultural environment is a bit different. So I was, I was aware of Catholicism. I was aware that Catholic priests were all men. Um, I never really gave it any thought. Uh, by the time I was in high school, Anglicans here started ordaining women as priests. Uh, again, for your American listeners, Anglicans in Australia didn't ordain women as priests until 1992, which is, I know, a, a lot later than it was over there. Um, and because I went to an Anglican high school, I was sort of dimly aware that this had happened. But the question of women's roles in the church just wasn't one I ever had to think about because I wasn't really in the church. Um, beyond thinking that the first time I saw a woman in a clerical collar, I really, that, that was very weird. It just looked, it just looked weird, a bit like someone cross-dressing. Um, but as I became an Anglican, um, I started to become aware that some of these things were issues. And um, certainly the parish I first joined um, was not really okay with women in ministry, although that didn't become obvious at first sight. But over time, I started to realise that the young guys were given opportunities to preach, but I wasn't. Um, the young guys were invited into leadership roles, but I wasn't. Um, that sort of thing. And when I began to discern a vocation to ministry, uh, it became very clear that that parish wasn't going to support me because usually you need to go forward with a recommendation from your parish and my parish wasn't going to give me one. Um, so I had to move parishes in order to pursue the question of vocation, which was tricky. Um, I'm sorry, I'm waffling a little bit. I should also point out that when I say Anglican, 
the church I mean here is in communion with the Episcopal Church in America. I realize Anglicanism is much more fractured over there. Um, so is that a helpful start? It is, absolutely, yeah. And I, I, um, I'm fascinated by the way that the these different churches that are that are so like I, I'm a I'm a little evangelical. I grew up evangelical, you know what I mean? So the Catholic Church and the Anglican Church seem to me to be such, you know, monoliths of of uh religion that I feel a little like um underprepared to fully understand the different branches and the different things. And um I'm so so fascinated by the different experiences you all have had. Um so I think that I would love to talk a little bit about just your experiences in each of these things. We, we have a, an outline that we go off of, and I had said, why don't we um, uncover the history of women in the Catholic Church and the history of women in the Anglican Church? And both of you were like, um, hello, we'd need like five episodes to do that. So we'll give some overviews. And so I'm like, yeah, that that's true. Can you just give me like the highlights of what, when you think about your faith and your church, what are some of the highlights of, of women in that in that church that you that stick out to you. Victoria, would you hop in with that? Yes. So as you said, um, this is in no way exhaustive because that would require covering millennia of history and that would take all night. So I'm just going to focus on a few things that are particularly important, um, both to the history of the church and to my personal faith journey. And the first thing that is most important to mention is the centrality of Marian devotion to the Catholic Church. Uh, so now I'm going to quote the catechism for a bit. Um, these are sections 966 and 967 of the catechism of the Catholic Church uh, on the holiness of the Virgin Mary. Finally, the Immaculate Virgin preserved free from all stain of original sin when the course of her earthly life was finished, was taken up body and soul into heavenly glory and exalted by the Lord as queen over all things, so that she might be the more fully conformed to her son, the Lord of Lords and conqueror of sin and death. The Assumption of the Blessed Virgin is a singular participation in her son's resurrection and an anticipation of the resurrection of other Christians. In giving birth, you kept your virginity. In your dormition, you did not leave the world, O Mother of God, but were joined to the source of life. You conceive the living God and by your prayers will deliver our souls from death. She is our mother in the order of grace. By her complete adherence to the Father's will, to his Son's redemptive work, and to every prompting of the Holy Spirit, the Virgin Mary is the Church's model of faith and charity. Thus, she is a preeminent and wholly unique member of the Church. Indeed, she is an exemplary realization of the Church. So, I, that to me, like as a person who is a person of faith and also a feminist, hearing that. Uh, Mary, the mother of God, is a full participant in the resurrection of Christ and also a prefigurer of the resurrection of the entire church, and that her prayers have impact on the holiness of the church past, present, and future. I, that, that's an incredible win for women, I think. Um, so Marian devotion is something that you cannot leave out when talking about the position of women in the Catholic Church, because I think seeing um, public corporate devotion to Mary as a female Catholic lets you know that your space in the church and the community as a woman um, is a sacred and holy and important space to take up. Can I ask a question, Victoria? Sure. 
I, I've read some Catholic women express the view that elevating Mary so much actually kind of depresses the place of other women because none of them can kind of live up to that model and that ideal. Yeah. Would, how would you respond to that idea? I, I see that argument and I, I am sure that uh, some women feel that way and I, I don't want to invalidate that. I will say that as a convert, if I wasn't a convert, if I was a cradle Catholic, I would probably feel more that way. Um, but I, as someone who was raised not just in the Protestant church, but in the low church Protestant church, um, Mary is one of the things that that in addition to feeling empowering also felt kind of exotic and cool and interesting to me about the Catholic church. So I, I think that uh, certainly it wouldn't make sense, especially for cradle Catholic women to feel like um, the Blessed Mother is this kind of unattainable um, ideal of womanhood. And I, you know, she she is, especially for mortal human um, women that are are not uh, immaculately conceived and are not sinless. Um, I also feel like we do not talk enough as people in general, as people of the church and as Catholics too, that like Mary being sinless, she, that it's Mary and Jesus who are sinless and that's it. Like that, that also seems like a feminist win to me. No, thank you. That's really interesting. Uh, so in addition to, um, Marian devotion, I think being important. I also wanted to talk um, just briefly about the female doctors of the church and also about the importance of um, women religious orders to Catholic history. So there are oodles and oodles of female saints that I, you know, I, I can't mention except to say that um, lots of people take uh patronesses rather than patrons. And, uh, and we think that the communion of saints prays for us. And a lot of that communion is women. Um, there are also what's called doctors of the church. That's a title given by uh, the council of Catholic bishops to saints recognized as having made a particular contribution to theology or doctrine through uh, education, research, study, and writing. Um, there are not very many female doctors of the church. There are only four out of, I think, 76 or 74. Um, the first female doctor of the church, St. Teresa of Avila, um, who was named a doctor in 1970, is my patron saint, um, partly because she is the first female doctor of the church. And I wanted to kind of, in, in my uh, confirmation, I wanted to have that feminist representation in there. Um, also, I think women religious are important in talking about the history of women in the Catholic Church because the religious orders are, for me, another space that the Catholic Church makes for women to serve as women that the Protestant Church um, does not. That there's this idea that you can still serve your community um, either by being cloistered or by being just taking religious orders. Um, Sisters are very central to Catholic education, Catholic community service, um, lots of community involvement and service to the poor and to children and to, um, I mean, I, I can't count the number of charities and food banks and things that are, that are run by uh, Catholic sisters. So yes, can't forget about those things too. And now I'm done. Okay. So part of what I hear you saying is, you know, whether or not women can be at the sort of the top of the hierarchy of leadership in the Catholic church, there are a lot of visibly vocational 
roles for women in the Catholic church. Um, that, and that appeals to you that there's a, there's a sense of like, um, not just like a, Hey, you get to lead the children's Bible study or the women's Bible study, which it was in, in my growing up. Right. But that there were some visible places for a woman to wear uh, a visible indication that she was a vocational church leader um, and that kind of thing. And that that has been impactful in, in your, or, or to you feels important. Yes, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Emily, how about you? Could you give us a little breakdown in history of women in the Anglican church? And, and even if we could like, I just even understanding um, where and how some of some of this differed. I mean, we know where the Anglican church came from, but if, if you can give us a little bit of background on, on the differences and how these two faiths in your experience are still in conversation. Sure, um, I, I will try to hit some highlights in a way that makes some sense. Um, so for those of you not across all the historical details, uh, the Church of England became separate from the Catholic Church in 1534, um, Henry VIII and all of that. Um, that's, that's prone to being oversimplified, but there were, there were more issues than just Henry wanted a divorce. But it, that's the point at which we started to part ways. So we've had sort of 500 years of, of trying to, to, in some ways, particularly for Anglicans, often trying to define ourselves over against Catholics. You know, we're, we're not them over there, we're doing our thing over here. Um, and I would say for a lot of that history, we have not done well for women. Um, because Henry did dissolve the monasteries, some of what Victoria's talking about, the religious orders and all of that, um, disappeared for several centuries. It took a long time before monasteries and convents were re-established in Anglicanism. Um, and we didn't have, we didn't have ordained women, and we didn't have, uh, we now have systems of church governance which allow for very high lay participation. Um, most of our dioceses are, are governed in a sort of a parliamentary style, and women are fully able to participate in all of that. But for most of our history, right, it was it was very, very hierarchy dominated, very male dominated. Um, some some sort of high notes I'd want to touch on is that sort of mid to late 19th century, we see not just the re-establishment of religious orders, but also deaconesses. Um, and we know that deaconesses existed in the ancient church. There's argument about whether they were really deacons or deaconesses and for how long and how all of that changed. But so we started to see deaconesses. And it's really interesting because while in some places, like in England, their difference from male deacons was really emphasized. In other places, I know particularly in some Asian dioceses, they were often basically treated as deacons. So we, we sort of start to see, at the same time as we're seeing synodical governance, parliamentary style governance, we're starting to see religious orders reestablished and we're starting to see deaconesses. Um, for priesthood, we had to wait until World War II. Uh, the Diocese of Hong Kong basically ran out of men under Japanese occupation. And uh, the Bishop of Hong Kong ordained a woman, Florence Lee Timoy, who was a deaconess, as a priest, and he he said, um, I am determined that no prejudices should prevent the congregations committed to my care having the sacraments of the church. And that was his that was his argument. No prejudice should prevent the congregations having the sacraments. Um, but after the war, Florence had to resign her license, not her orders, but her license, and we had to wait until the 70s for more women as priests um, and until the 80s for, for bishops. Is that sort of a helpful beginning sketch? It absolutely is. Um, yeah, lots of really interesting points of, of uh, 
movement and change. And I think that, you know, I think we should acknowledge in this conversation that part of what we're talking about is a, Emily, you have a vocational call to ministry. So you, um, your approach to women in leadership is entirely different because you're coming at it from a space of vocational call. And in Victoria, we were talking a little bit earlier about you as an individual in the church. There's, and there's so much representation of Catholic, of women in leadership in Catholic spaces that you as an individual congregant don't necessarily feel that gap um, or that, that frustration. And so I, I think that I just want to acknowledge that that's, that that's real, that that's what's here. And I think, um, you know, part of my, um, my experience has been working. I, I, uh, grew up in a, in a completely complementarian environment. And if you know the Christian feminine po feminist podcast, you know that we range from complementarian ish to relatively egalitarian and, um, that I am at this point fully egalitarian and, um, and that, that, but I grew up in a scenario where there were no women in leadership at any level of the church. And, um, I also grew up very low Protestant as Victoria did. And so then grew up into adulthood, had a sense of a vocational call, um, but was told in my Bible college and all of that, that, nope, that's not for you because you're a girl, <laughs> you know? And so chose not to, to take that path. And then later in life came into a space of progressive faith where I found that, oh, women are doing that and still didn't quite find my way into it, but also started an organization called She Is Called that brought together female clergy that tried to find, um, particularly in post or progressive evangelical spaces. So women who had been raised like me to think that there wasn't a vocation for them who were still trying to do that work and to deal with some of the, the uh, pieces that I would now call trauma that would make that difficult. Um, and so I think that that there's, when we're talking about this, there is, it is kind of, it's important to think about like, if you're a woman with a vocational call, your experience with um, your denomination or your church that it, it, you know, is going to be different. If you have a vocational call, you're going to have to find a place where that's accepted, right? And if you don't, it, it might not hurts for you as an individual to be in a space where that's that's not the case. Um, so I, I just want to say some of that and um, also want to just keep thinking about like, what do we think the future is for this? What do we think the future is in, in the Catholic Church towards women in leadership? Um, where do we think it's, it's going? Does it matter? Does it matter in some sort of um, theological or existential way that there be women in leadership um, or not? So I would love to just kind of um, think a little bit about what we think the future might be and, and what it, what it could look like and, and what matters about it. Victoria, could you jump in there and, and kick us off? Yes. So, um, I, you alluded to a conversation that we had, um, before we recorded. So I'll, I'll start there. Um, I know that I have said on record on this podcast that I would never, ever be a member of a religious denomination that uh, that did not ordain women. And that is a thing that I felt very strongly 10 years ago. Obviously, I'm Catholic now, and Catholics do not ordain women. Um, I have gotten a handful of emails from listeners who have been with us uh, since the beginning asking me, usually very nicely to uh, to explain that internal contradiction and and tell them why I changed my mind on that. Um, so if if you wrote and asked me that question, um, thank you very much. I, I appreciate the uh, the feedback. And for me, I think um, what you said earlier, Carla, is true. I feel like there is so much more space for women in Catholic theology because of Mary, because of the religious orders, because of female saints, because of the way I see women serve as 
lectures and communion servers and um, altar girls alongside altar boys. Um, I feel like that is so much more representation than I got growing up that um, ordination is not as important to me individually because I'm seeing more um, visible roles for women in my faith community. I also think, um, I'm, I'm not going to talk a ton about Pope Francis, but I should talk a little bit about him. Um, as a convert, one of the things that I have signed up for is to be under the authority of the Pope and the magisterium of the church. Like as someone who is converting to this tradition willfully as an adult, like that is one of the things I'm signing off on. So as someone who's signing off on those things, there's a degree to which I feel like I have to trust the Pope and the magisterial authorities on that point. Um, I know that all Catholics do not feel that way. And if you are a Catholic who is campaigning for uh, women priests and women bishops and you, you feel called to do that, please do that. And do not hear me criticizing that because I'm not. I'm just saying uh, I don't feel called to that particular cause at this time. Um, but I, I do think that women in visible service roles are important. Uh, I, I was very happy when Pope Francis earlier this year um, said that women can be lectors and communion servers. And also in February, he um, gave two high-ranking Vatican posts. One of them is uh, co-secretary of the Bishop Synod, and the other one is, I'm not sure which, but it's a very high-ranking Vatican position. Um, they've never been occupied by women before, and now two of them are. So we're, we're seeing things happen um, now, just as we saw post uh, Vatican II, that's the, the second Vatican Council, which happened uh, in the 1960s. And that's the point at which um, more masses were in English. Um, girls could be altar servers. And uh, there was just a real uptick in layperson mass involvement um, from the kind of earlier half of the 20th century. So even now, we're still making progress. Um, and I understand if people think that it's not enough and that women be priests too, um, though that is not something I feel particularly strongly about at this time. Yeah, um, I, yeah, thank you for that, Victoria, very much. Um, Emily, I'd love to hear your thoughts. <laughs> um, I, 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 let me start with, does it matter? And I think it matters on a couple of levels. And, and the first one is kind of very, very visceral and individual. And that is the question of does, does being obedient to God matter? Um, if God calls someone, I mean, we, we've got scripture full of stories of God calling people to go and do this or do that or do the other thing. Some, some people um, are obedient and some run in the other direction and find a big fish. But the, but the thing of, you know, if God calls, how do we respond as individuals? How do we respond as a church community? And if we're confronted with a problem when we have women coming forward saying, God is calling me to this or to that or to the other thing, and we refuse to prayerfully discern it. I mean, not everybody who comes forward saying, I think God's calling me to ministry is actually right. Not everybody um, is actually fit for that role. I'm not, I'm not sort of wanting to say it should be 
treated as if everybody who thinks they might have a vocation should have hands laid on them tomorrow. It's not that. But if we refuse to discern that question for half of our population, I think there's, there's a profound problem there. But the other reason I think it matters is actually sitting somewhere much deeper, and that is the question of um, whether, we, whether we treat as primary our humanity or our gender. Um, one of the big arguments that's oh, often... Oh, wow. Yeah, I'm, I'm gaspy right there too. Keep going. Oh, sorry. Um, because one of the arguments that's often put forward for why women can't be priests is, you know, Christ was male and the priest represents Christ and all of that. Well, we don't ask the priest to represent Christ in any of his other human attributes. So why is the Y chromosome the one thing that's sort of irreplaceably necessary for representing Christ? If that's your theology of what ordained ministry is about. If we say that Christ assuming humanity was enough to redeem all of humanity, including women, why are all of humanity, including women, not able to present that truth to, to the world? Um, these are, I'm, I'm sort of playing with theology there, but those are, those are big questions that I think go to some of my sense of why this matters. Um, I might pause and let you react. <laughs> Yeah, I, I really appreciate that. And the question of, does your humanity matter? Does your gender matter? And I think that the other piece of it for me um, ha has been about who gets, to who gets to say, who gets to tell me, like what voice am I supposed to listen to? Is that an external male leader's voice telling me, no, that you're not allowed that? Or am I supposed to be listening to the internal divine voice that guides and that says, you know, that speaks to me directly. And I think that, you know, part of what my process has been in growing up in a, in a church where the voice of God was always male, right, has been, it's been such a, a journey for me to recognize my own internal guidance, my own internal, call it the spirit, call it, um, you know, the divine in me, um, that that actually has authority, that I, that I get to listen to what's inside mm -hmm. of me instead of looking outside of me for guidance. Um, and, you know, it's been like it's been a fascinating for me an interesting journey because I would say it was literature that that took me on that that trip <laughs> that when I started my master's degree and I was studying early modern British literature I started to note in the literature um, the way that that uh, gender hierarchy was talked about the way that the image of God was assigned to men um, but not to women and that women had to be joined to a man to be able to experience the image of God and that that was all um, you know, religious tradition at the time, but passed down in large part by, by literature. And even the literature would struggle with it, <laughs> would, would note that a woman, a person cut off from divine inspiration did not have a full experience of her humanity, um, that she had a different experience than the masculine, the male who was allowed revelation. Um, and, and so for me, that, and I, in my thesis, I, I called it, I called it uh, disappointment, female disappointment in early modern literature. And I meant by that, like an existential disappointment, not an experiential disappointment, but an existential disappointment that I actually don't have access to what is the inspiration of humanity, um, as long as I don't have access to the divine voice inside me. Um, and so for me, like, what has mattered about it has been, that has been an acknowledgement of what internal divine voice can mean in terms of, and now, you know, I think about it in, in terms of trauma a lot, the self-betrayal that happens when you're constantly looking outside yourself for affirmation or for guidance. Um, you know, the, the choices I would have made differently had I, had I 
um, you know, been willing to listen to my own internal voice. So there's so much in my, now that I'm middle-aged that I look back on and go, boy, had I been raised differently, some of those things would, you know, we all take our journey. So I'm not, I don't have like, um, I'm grateful for where I am. And I think that it would, it matters a lot to me that my daughters believe in their internal voice. Um, and I do think that the way that women in leadership, the, my like lack of exposure to women in leadership in any form um, growing up did impact that. So to me, that's part of why it matters. Um, uh, yes, y yes, yes to all the things. Um, and, and I might add my own experience of vocation, my own experience of God calling me, when I finally figured out that's what going, was going on because it took me a while, but my own experience of God calling me to do this work, um, to someone who often felt a bit worthless and a bit useless and a bit pathetic and a bit like I don't really know that I've got anything to offer anyone, that was the most overwhelming visceral affirmation of me that I could imagine happening, that God the, that God, the creator of the universe and the creator of me said there's something here that you have to offer and I want you to offer it. Mm -hmm. And what I want for everyone, every human being in, in a way, what, what kind of fuels my ministry is the desire for them to know, to know who their creator has created them to be in that way. For not everyone will that be ordination, but to find that place where they, they know and thrive in God's yes to them and when we put barriers in the way of women, that doesn't work. Right. What I, I agree a hundred percent with what you're saying, Emily, about listening to to the voice of God, and that that every person should have the the individual uh, ability and the communal encouragement and resources to to figure out what God's voice um, is is saying to them. And I, I want to, uh, Carla, I really enjoyed um, what you were saying about graduate school. Um, because I, I can relate a lot to, to those experiences too. I, I also have graduate degrees in literature um, and it, it was a literary theory that made me a feminist and uh, it was medieval and early modern texts that made me a Catholic. And, and the fact that I was, I was seeing the same kind of respect for unruly overflowing feminineness as I was in, in things like French feminist text, which I've talked about on this podcast, uh, I was seeing that same vibe in uh, the female mystic tradition in people like Julian of Norwich and Marjorie Kemp and St. Teresa of Avila, who I mentioned earlier. I'm nodding now. I'm nodding now. <laughs> Me too. We're, yep, we're all nodding in unison. Right. Um, I, li listeners, if, if you're interested in hearing more about Teresa of Avila, um, I am doing an episode on her and her prayers and we'll read a bit of her autobiography and a bit of my favorite text of hers, Interior Castles, um, next fall. And, uh, it will drop, uh, the day before, uh, her feast day, my holy birthday, uh, because I stole the first spot on the schedule. So that would be the case. So I'm very excited about uh, that coming up too. But yes, I think that my my feminism and my theology are sort of naughtily connected in, in these um, ways that aren't really able to be extricated from one another. And I, I definitely think that there is room for female flourishing and, and for hearing the voice of the Holy Spirit um, in, in lots of different religious traditions. 
Yeah, I think so too. And I think that part of what, you know, I'm enjoying about our conversation is what you brought earlier up earlier, what you brought up earlier, Victoria, and in just sort of the the intersection of this, which is, you know, the the gender, your experience of, of gender exclusion was less brutal than your than the ableism music you experienced growing up. And so I think that like for each of us to find the place where where the, that intersection of our spiritual need is met, like I actually just want to say that that I don't think we have to align on this and say that we we each have our thing, you know, or that there's only one way to see this. Um, and there's so much richness in what you're talking about to me in in um, the visible leadership of women women in the Catholic Church. I, I have lots of curiosity about what that would have been like to grow up, as you said, as a as a cradle Catholic and try to understand. Um, just having had that demonstrated over a lifetime, what that would have, what that would have meant, you know? So uh, well, that, that wouldn't have been true before, like, well, in some cases before this January with women being lectors and, and uh, communion servers, but um, women wouldn't have been participating in worship that way before, in most cases, the early seventies. So, um, so we've, we're about a generation into that in the Catholic church. Mm-hmm. A generation mm-hmm. of of adults, multiple you know generations of people being born. That's fascinating. That's fascinating. I, I you know I think uh, I'm just going to circle back around. We talked a little bit about the mind body split before, and just sort of that that um, tendency of so many faiths to split those two things and put the mind over the body. And you know that that is part of gender hierarchy as well. That the the male was associated with the mind and the, the female with the body, and therefore gender hierarchy was a thing. And I think that we touched really briefly again in our prep on the idea of hierarchy in the church and and how that can play. And uh, Emily, you said you said a little bit just about like sometimes your concern is um, more with the sort of weight of leadership that that whole there's sort of a hierarchical power that sometimes you're uncomfortable with and I wonder if you'd just say a little bit about that and I, I asked that in part because as I was working uh doing she is called I often would find that women were quite uncomfortable with power and part of that was because it seemed like um and I'm not saying that that's your experience um but I but it was interesting to talk about what does power look like in a non-hierarchical sense when we're not in a power over position, which really all of this talk about leadership and which role and all of that are is essentially hierarchical and power over. But what does it look like if we can be in a power with scenario? And I have curiosity about as women step into leadership roles um, and don't want to step into a place of having um, sort of oppressive power over, does that, does that start to transform clergyship into something like power with? Um, that's the ideal. I don't know that it's the reality. Um, I, I talk a lot about trying to step off the pedestal uh, in all kinds of ways and, and work with my people collaboratively. But what I've observed is a lot of the time um, you're setting the agenda. And, and I mean that in some ways quite literally, like I set the agenda for parish council, but I'm, I'm the one who kind of decides what gets what, what things get paid attention to and what things are treated as important and what things matter in my parish. And, you know, similarly, at a diocesan level, my bishop is setting the agenda. And um, I do think that there's a whole separate conversation to be had about the way clergy function, the way ordained ministry functions um, is within the household of faith and whether that is the empowering and the equipping and the encouraging that it should be or whether it sometimes is something else and how you manage boundaries and all of that stuff. There's, there's 
a ton there that we could unpack that we don't really have time for, but those are real and live questions that are not resolved just by kind of popping women in every position and, and saying, oh, well, well, we've sorted the issues now. You can't, you can't do that. Right. It sort of, it sort of begs the question if the whole structure is, um, I, this is a, the best word I can come up with is masculine in its, in its uh, way of being. <laughs> um, so popping women, women into roles doesn't necessarily change the structure, um, the hierarchical structure than necessarily. I don't know whether I would say it's masculine in that by default, but often it assumes a masculine norm. I, I can't remember whether I told you uh, when we had our previous chat that um, I got kicked out of college when I was pregnant because they didn't know how to handle flexibility for a, a pregnant ordination candidate um, because they'd never had one before. So, so that kind of stuff, you know, it, there's an assumption about the default and when you're different from the default, it can get really messy. Mm -hmm. Wow. I, I don't know what to say to that, except I'm so sorry you had to experience that and what a terrible excuse it is to say, we're not going to do this because we've never had to before. I'm so sorry. <laughs> yes. Yes. Um, yeah. I think that... Sorry. It, look, look, it was... I look back on it now and I'm kind of like, well, I, I, it's really human and I can be understanding, but at the time it was quite, quite gobsmacking really. Yeah, I, I get it too. I mean, I've, I've had people make um, excuses as to why they're not adhering to ADA law for the same exact reason. Uh, we don't know how to build stairs here because the building is too old. Um, we don't know how to build a ramp because we've never had anyone ask us for one before. It's the, it's the same excuse and it's, you know, refusing to let differently shaped bodies take up the same amount of space and it's not cool yeah. no it's not yeah I appreciate that from both of you so much um I I think this has been a great conversation I wonder if there's any last things that either of you want to say before we move to pass it on passing it on I don't think so I accept Thank you, Emily, so much for this conversation. Thank you for writing in and thank you for uh, participating so graciously. I've, I've really enjoyed this a lot. Oh, thank you. So have I. Um, no, it, it's, I'm just really grateful that, that my email got a, a response that made space for the conversation. Um, there's so much we haven't covered, but we really don't have time. I think it's, it's, it has been a great conversation and that we've probably covered what we need to for now. Thank you, Carla. I mean, I think, yeah, there's, there's genuinely um, hours and hours of things that we could cover on this and um, um, so many things we haven't even, we've barely touched on, you know, scripture and, and how it's been interpreted and how it's been used and, and those kinds of things. There's a whole lot we haven't touched on. Um, but I think that just holding these two traditions next to each other and talking about the different ways that they've handled um, women and, and part of what, again, I think I'm grateful for is just that it does highlight that there, that there are um, that there are varied experiences of faith and that we can find our place in it if that's a thing that we choose. And I think that, um, you know, women in leadership in the church is, is central to my, I, it matters a lot to me. And um, so this conversation has been fun for me. And Victoria, I've learned an awful lot about like uh, what the experience in the Catholic church could be for a woman and why it could potentially feel different. Um, so so I'm grateful for all of that. Um, I would love to, to do our traditional pass it on. Uh, what do you think our listeners should listen to, read, watch that, that pertains to this topic? Do you want to go first, Victoria? 
Sure, I can. I have way more than one recommendation, so I will go quickly uh, through them. Uh, the first is uh, an article that covers a um, 1976 sociological study of Catholic women um, post-Vatican II done by America Magazine, um, which is a, a Jesuit publication. Um, the article that I read the study recapped in um, is from 2020 and called How Lay Women Changed the Catholic Church After Vatican II. Uh, and the article is really fascinating. It follows this group of Catholic women who were activists in their community who did things like start food banks and uh, educational programs, uh, in some cases, Catholic sex education programs, um, which were very 70s and I don't think would, uh, would exist today <laughs> in the same way. Um, but these women who were volunteering with causes that I think women inside the feminist movement would call feminist causes, um, poverty justice and racial justice and uh, food and clothing drives and things like that. But these Catholic women were very reticent to identify as feminists and did not identify as feminists. But uh, the article plots kind of the, the social change that stemmed from this group of people. Uh, so I will link to that America article. I found it fascinating. Um, I also, I started following uh, this woman at the Hippie Catholic on TikTok. Um, and she is my new favorite person because she... Um, is pro-racial reconciliation, pro-universal basic income, and uh, pro-head covering and anti-birth control. <laughs> and, I think, and I think that intersection of things is just like so incredibly fascinating, and I want to hang out with her and be her best friend uh, because I, I love that she sort of doesn't check all the boxes in either direction straight down the line. Um, so I, I would recommend checking out the hippie Catholic on TikTok and by the same token, um, the Catholic feminist.com. I've talked about Claire Swinarski, um, the Catholic feminist before, uh, she now has a kind of internet empire. There's a, an online community and books and multiple podcasts. Uh, and I have, have tried to reach out to her and get an interview with her, but she is too cool for us. Um, if, if anyone in her orbit listens to this, please tell Claire that I love her and I think she's amazing. Uh, so that America article, the hippie Catholic and the Catholic feminist.com. Awesome. Thank you very much. And that, I mean, you brought up some stuff that we haven't even begun to talk about in, in uh, the Catholic tradition, which is the, you know, uh, virginity and birth control and all, all the different things that that says about the female body and her uh, autonomy so yeah that's a that's another <laughs> episode and 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 maybe mm -hmm. we'll do that eventually but that mm -hmm. is that is not a discussion for today yeah agreed agreed emily what about you what do you got to pass on uh if someone's up for a slightly heavier read i'm going to recommend emma percy's book what clergy do especially when it looks like nothing is that what based on do? what mothers do especially when it looks like nothing there's a book called uh -huh. what Quite possibly because she, the, one of the reasons I'm recommending this is that she very openly considers ministry in maternal terms, ministry as mothering. Oh, I would um, it, it, it's a great exploration of, of kind of congregational leadership and ordained ministry, but, but in very maternal terms. So it, not all of it might resonate, but it's a very interesting and quite a different sort of take um, and, and well worth reading. 
That sounds fascinating. I read uh, What Mothers Do and It Looks Like Nothing while I was uh, nursing my first and it, it was kind of life-changing. Um, so I would love to hear, to read this. Um, so for mine, I actually have something for people to watch. Um, I am not typically a fan of Jesus movies. I'm going to say that. And so I don't go for them uh, without prompting. But a friend of mine prompted me to watch Mary Magdalene, the new Mary Magdalene movie. And um, I and they said, I think that there's stuff in there that you're that's really going to resonate with you. And it really did. And some of that is about um, the gendered leadership of the church and how that happened. And part of that that is around like what Mary Magdalene understood about Jesus' teaching um, that it, it was just a fascinating movie. I really appreciated it. Um, so that's my recommendation is the new Mary Magdalene movie. All right. I think that's got us. Um, so I will close us out. Thank you for listening to the Christian Feminist Podcast. We'd love to hear from you like we did Emily. If you have a topic or reading recommendations for future shows, or if you just want to drop us a line, you can do so at christianfeministpodcast. Sorry, christianfeministpodcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on our Facebook page or at the network's Twitter handle uh, at CH Radio Network. And check out show notes from this and our other episodes at Christian Humanist at the Christian Humanist blog at christianhumanist.org. The Christian Humanist Podcast is a member, sorry, goodness, starting that sentence over. The Christian Feminist Podcast is a member of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Kristen Philippic is our press liaison. For Emily and Victoria, I'm Carla. Tune in in two weeks when we'll discuss Pastor's Wives uh, as a follow-up to this episode a little bit. And all the panelists on that episode will be either current Pastor's Wives or former pastors. And and, uh, so that'll be a super interesting take on that as well. Until then, in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, and in all things, love.